This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. Until recently, there have been three candidates for the title Most Significant U.S. Secretary of Education of All Time. Bill Bennett, Ronald Reagan's appointee, is the first to have that title raised on his behalf. Uh, he used the bully pulpit to command public attention to the unhappy state of American education. Margaret Spellings is the second. She was an aide to George W. Bush, and she designed No Child Left Behind, and as secretary, she fought for its implementation. The third is Arne Duncan, Barack Obama's appointee. He fought for Common Core, among other things. He sought to lift the standards in education by setting a, a national set of standards or a common set of standards across the country. But there's a case against all three of these candidates. Big Bill Bennett was a great rhetorician, but it's unclear that he accomplished much. Spelling's dream, No Child Left Behind, couldn't be sustained over time, nor could Common Core, Arnie Duncan's legacy, survive the challenges of implementation inside the schoolhouse and inside the classroom. So now we have a fourth candidate, Secretary Betsy DeVos, Donald Trump's secretary and a champion of school choice. Her advocacy for choice has stirred ferocious opposition from teacher unions and the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. But she has put the choice issue on the national education agenda in a way never before achieved. And school choice is today a movement winning battles in many states across the country. Well, Secretary DeVos is also one of the few secretaries of education to write a quasi-memoir. Arnie Duncan wrote a memoir, and, and now we have something that's bordering on that by uh, Secretary DeVos. But she has a broader message as well, which is conveyed by her title, Hostages No More, The Fight for Education Freedom and the Future of the American Child. So I'm very pleased to have Secretary DeVos with me on the Education Exchange today. Thank you, uh, Secretary DeVos, for joining me on the Education Exchange. Well, it's a pleasure to join you, Paul. Very excited to be with you. Well, uh, since you're calling me Paul, I'm going to take advantage of the fact that we've known each other uh, for some time and call you Betsy. So let me ask you, Betsy, first, uh, the first and probably a boring question, uh, but it's got a point to it. Why did you write this book? I mean, being Secretary of Education in such a controversial era, uh, who wants to revisit them? So why did you write this book? Well, I, that's not a boring question at all for me, uh, because I am as excited about the future of education freedom and school choice today, more excited than ever before. I was motivated to write the book because the last two years of families across America's experience with the 175-year-old K-12 government-run system has revealed to them the many failings that for many years, those of us who have been trying to change policy to support families have known. Uh, families have had a front row seat in these failings, and whether it was uh, poorly delivered or not delivered at all distance education while schools were shut down or uh, being horrified at seeing some of the curriculum that their children were being uh, fed or being very disappointed with the uh, rigor or the 
uh, demand for excellence that uh, their children were uh, also being uh, fed in terms of distance learning or any any uh, part of that experience, you know, families had a front row seat, and many of them um, had uh, had their eyes awakened in ways they had never really contemplated before. And so, this move for drive for policies that will support families to control their kids' education has never been stronger than it is today. And, uh, and so that really was my motivation to write about my experiences before um, and to build on those and to talk about where we, we really need to go with American K-12 education um, to really be focused on doing the right thing for individual students. Well, you know, you have the phrase hostages no more as the title of the book. And, you know, with the Ukrainian war and with all kinds of other things going on in the world, that's a very commanding title. So, so what do you mean by this hostages no more? Well, it's a provocative title, no doubt, um, but it's a very direct reference to a quote made by Horace Mann. Horace Mann, commonly known as the father of our K-12 education system, who uh, approximately 175 years ago said that educators are entitled to look upon parents as having given hostages to our cause. And this again, I think um, is, is very uh, current in that families have realized in the last couple of years just how hostage their children have been to a system and in many cases, uh, ideological causes that are out of sync with their own. Um, and so it, it really is a direct reference to that quote and the need for children to be freed of being hostages. Well, I always want to remind our listeners when Tom, uh, when Horace Mann's name comes up, that actually he homeschooled his own children. His so own children much were, like, were taught at home. Interesting. <laughs> much like those who fight against education, freedom, and school choice today, um, many of those same people have had opportunities to make choices for their own children, but they deny them to others. But the other thing in your title is you talked about education freedom rather than school choice, though much of what you talk about is giving opportunities to people to choose their own school. So why do you yes. use the word education freedom? It's a sort um, of a new word in this context. Well, I, I have uh, been talking about education freedom but because I think it's it gets more broadly at what we are talking about uh, in terms of policies that will support the kind of changes we need and the kind of creativity and innovation that we really need in the K-12 learning experience. When we say school choice, which I, you know, I, I will still use that occasionally, but and it can be used interchangeably. But I think education freedom gives us a broader view of what it could look like. Uh, I have had many conversations with uh, rural legislators, for example, who say, "Well, I just have you know small communities, and there's only one high school in my district. We don't need to have another high school or another building." And I, I try to think, help them think more broadly to say, well, that's fine. We're not necessarily talking about another school building, but we should be talking about ways that we meet individual students' needs. Maybe it's through 
course choice, or maybe it's through provide you know, funds that provide transportation to a career and technical opportunity that's you know three towns over, or maybe it's a bunch of kids in that school who learn differently than the rest of the kids, and they form a little micro school that cohabits with the school. We have to think again more broadly about what uh, learning can actually look like and really unbundling learning in a way that we haven't really thought about before. And I think education freedom is a term that gets more broadly at that idea. Well, one of the other goals that you had as secretary was to turn many issues over to the state and localities, the states and localities, the local school districts. And, and I believe in federalism. I've written a lot about federalism over the years. But now I'm wondering, haven't the teacher unions acquired so much power at the state and local level that it's important to have a federal uh, voice in, the, in, in uh, articulating uh, another point of view? Can you really just leave it to states and localities? Well, I, I do think we can. I mean, we've seen the, uh, the strengthening of the system around teacher unions and all of their allies ever since the advent or leading up to and then following the advent of the, the Federal Department of Education. That really has been uh, how a lot of this power has become amassed at the federal level with overreach into state and local issues. And, 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 and I would argue the opposite is, is really should be the case. And that is that you know states should be uh, the ones in in uh, in control of policy at the state level, and uh, we're going to see different states handling um, how they provide education freedom in slightly different ways. But that's all good because it becomes comparative, and uh, just like you know, there's competition between states and economic development uh, matters. There can and should be competition between states in how. Uh, how uh, you know we establish policies that support learning for K-12 kids in ways that uh, that differ slightly. And I, I think about Arizona being now a groundbreaker in actually passing a, a, a universal um, education freedom initiative through the education savings account program that Governor Ducey just signed into law last week. And uh, and and I think that's going to really be. Um, a motivator for other states that have sort of been sitting on the fence to say, if, if Arizona can do this, we better not be far behind. Well, your predecessor, uh, Arnie Duncan, was very uh, much of an advocate for uh, college and career ready. And I think he really put a lot of emphasis on getting kids ready for college. You're, you have been um, sort of questioning whether or not there's too much emphasis on college preparation in, in our high schools. So yeah, we know that people do earn a lot more in life usually if they uh, have a college degree as a distinct from a high school diploma. So why are you not so sure that kids need to go to college? Well, I think we've, uh, we've culturally suggested that your way to success is to go to a four-year and graduate from a four-year college or university. But we know today that there are several million jobs that are really good career job, careers uh, paths and, uh, and provide a really meaningful pathway into adult life. 
uh, that don't require four-year college. And we, we continue to, I think, compel kids into um, experiences that they really may, might not be suited for or really interested in, but they feel like they have to in, in order to be deemed successful. I think we need to change that conversation, continue to change that conversation. And I would say, you know, our administration did do a lot to support alternative pathways, including uh, creation of new apprenticeship opportunities, which are very underexplored in America as compared to other uh, countries in the world, say Switzerland and Germany, for example. And, um, and I think we have, to, we have to also challenge young people to be discerning about the kind of path they choose if they do choose a four-year uh, college experience, because there are very different programs and courses of study that result in very different opportunities when you come out the other end. And yet we talk about four-year college as though it's all one and the same, and that if you go and you graduate, you're going to be set. Well, we know for a fact that there are there are very varying um, uh, results when uh, when navigating a bunch of these different options, and we have lots of young people today who've taken on a lot of debt and who really don't have uh, a, a viable uh, career path once they've graduated from those, uh, those four-year institutions. So again, I think we need to be very intentional about talking about a multitude of pathways beyond high school and, and actually uh, exposing people, young people to those kinds of opportunities much earlier on in their K-12 experience and giving them opportunity to actually learn a little bit by either shadowing or, or apprenticeship or internship opportunities. So you talk about the debt that has been uh, a problem for many students. So President Biden is saying, let's forgive the debt. Is that, what do you think of that idea? A horrible idea, a horrible idea. First of all, Two out of three Americans don't go to college, don't go to a four-year college or university, don't take out student debt. And so why would we expect two out of three Americans to underwrite uh, that choice made by one-third of uh, Americans that do? Secondly, what about the, the students who've been faithfully paying on their college loans and have paid them off? Or the families that, you know, parents that have saved for their children to be able to go and, and uh, pursue a college education, or the military veterans who have earned a college education. Um, you know, it's, it, it, it is unfair at best, and it's horrible policy at worst. Additionally, you go wave a bunch of college debt away and forgive it. What have you solved? you haven't changed the equation for the future at all. And so that's not the, you know, that is not the solution. Uh, the solution is for Congress to wind back this notion that the federal government has to be the, you know, the sole lender for student aid and, um, and also figure out ways for institutions to have some accountability in the equation. Uh, we've seen that, you know, massive, growth in uh, cost of higher education as the federal government federalized student lending. And, uh, and there's just total disincentives built in um, that, are, that are 
they're, they're unsolvable under this current rubric. So the rubric has to change and uh, Congress had better get serious about that. Well, there's a lot of issues there. Um, I, I must say I have a, a family member who's paid off uh, his uh, family college debts and uh, is not too enthusiastic right. <laughs> about others who weren't so responsible uh, now having the government take them over. <laughs> exactly. No, exactly. And I mean, it's nothing but, uh, you know, an attempted political payoff and uh, we should call it what it is. So Secretary DeVos, uh, we now have a committee in the House of Representatives that's investigating the events of January 6th, 2020. And it was shortly after that date that you resigned from your position as Secretary of Education. Why did you resign? Well, Paul, um, it was really a hard thing to watch on January 6th. And, um, you know, everything I did at the Department of Education was with the goal of keeping students at the center of everything we did. And um, I thought about what young people were seeing and what they might be thinking about what they were seeing that day. And it was, it was very difficult to, um, you know, to, to, to watch and think about that. And um, I, I just felt that the president needed to go uh, much further, much more quickly to really put an end or a stop to what had happened. And I, I was just very, very disappointed. Um, and then, uh, you know, when he, when he sort of turned against his vice president who had been faithfully with him the four years, that was, uh, that was kind of the edge of the line for me. Um, and, and, you know, to be very honest, we, we had really completed all of the work that we could possibly get done on behalf of students. Um, it was, you know, it was very plausible following the, uh, elections in November when there, when there was debate going on over the second COVID relief package, there was a, a very plausible scenario for a tax, a federal tax credit and a, a federal uh, choice initiative to become part of that package, but there just wasn't enough focus on the possibilities in, in the White House. And, um, and so it, all, all of those things kind of coming together, just um, basically that, that it became clear to me the day after the, the sixth that my job was done and, and I, needed to, I needed to, you know, express my, um, my displeasure over what had happened, but also to reaffirm that I felt we should be taking uh, victory laps those last several weeks over all of the things that the administration had accomplished. And um, instead we were, you know, looking at the events of, of January 6th. And, um, and so that was, uh, that was basically my, my reasoning and, um, and I felt, you know, I was, it, I, I, I concluded my job. I felt it was a job well done. And, uh, and that was that. There was this, you know, at the very end of the administration, there was this COVID bill, which as you mentioned, uh, had a tax credit provision possibility. Uh, and uh, you didn't get the support of the White House uh, at, at that time. 
How about during the administration as a whole? Did you feel that you had enough support from the White House for your agenda? Well, the president was always very supportive. I mean, it was his agenda that really attracted me to serve in the first place. He was the first um, presidential candidate and then presidential, the president that actually called specifically for a, uh, a school choice um, provision. And, um, and so he, he consistently was supportive of that. Uh, that didn't always translate down into all the folks with whom we had to work. Um, and I, so some of that was, uh, it was, it was inconsistently supported. And um, there was a lot of, yeah, uh, there was a lot of back and forth, depending on the time during the administration and what it was, you know, what the, the realities were at the time. But um, I, I think what, what is pretty clear in hindsight is that with some more concerted focus and effort from the White House, I think we could have uh, we could have been successful in that second COVID relief package, and and even you know earlier on the first half of the administration with the whole tax bill, um, which you know there 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 if I had known now what I uh, or then what I knew know now. I probably would have gotten much more um, personally uh, insistent and urgent around inclusion of some provision in the tax bill initially. Uh, I, I, I relied on a lot of folks within uh, the White House infrastructure to carry that water. And, um, and you know, some of them were very helpful and, and in other cases it wasn't. But there, you know, there's lots of things that are pretty 2020 in hindsight. What I do know is that, um, you know, we we were consistently building more support in uh, on Capitol Hill for this notion of uh, a federal tax credit provision, and I continue to have great optimism that that support is going to continue to build today. And it's not a matter of if; it's a matter of when we will ultimately have that kind of uh, that kind of uh, legislation passed. Well, yes, I think there's a, a good point there. The, the agenda has moved forward uh, for sure, and COVID may have helped to move forward that agenda. But at the same time, uh, you know, so many schools were closed during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. uh, we now know that children lost ground academically, socially, emotionally, physically. Should schools have been closed? Well, no. I mean, and, and that was one of the things that we started observing in May of 2020. And um, as a matter of fact, you know, the, the whole administration was pretty um, straightforward about the fact that we needed to be getting kids back to school back in the classroom, back in person. And, um, and that was a, a huge, huge disappointment when um, we saw in the fall so many states that would not reopen, so many large urban areas that didn't reopen. And I think, I mean, we, we won't know the real long-term impact on kids who could least afford to be out of 
school out of the classroom, uh, we won't know that full impact for a long time. But we, what we do know it is, is it has been devastating um, from a learning perspective, from a mental health perspective. Um, it, it's just, it's been uh, just inexcusable. And, um, and I would, uh, you know, I would point the finger directly at the system that was there to advance its own agenda to secure more resources in many cases to secure more, um, you know, more provisions that had nothing to do with children getting back into the classroom, but everything to do with uh, a left-wing ideology putting, you know, putting its stamp on uh, whatever, you know, whatever the locale is, whether it was LA or Chicago or, um, you know, any, any other number of places. And, um, and, and the kids are the ones that are suffering as a result. Well, do you regret that you didn't take a tougher stance as secretaries with 2020 hindsight? Do you think you could have made a difference if you had really campaigned that we must open these schools. I can remember well, talking with a teacher union leader uh, in the summer of, um, you know, just before that fall, crucial fall decision was made. And, and they were wavering a little bit. They thought, well, maybe we should open this fall. In the end, they, the, the NEA was not willing to, to really push for that. But do you think it would have helped if you had been more aggressive on that? Well, I, I do feel we were quite aggressive. And um, and in fact, you know, there was a lot of personal political pushback from the teachers union heads um, against the administration because we were vocally saying kids need to be back in school. I, uh, you know, I personally visited um, a, a whole number of schools uh, many times along with the vice president, schools that had or states that had decided they could reopen and, and, and charter schools and private schools that reopened to say, look, they're doing it. They're doing it successfully and uh, highlighting those, uh, those positive notions. Uh, but the reality was that, uh, you know, the environment, the political environment was was absolutely spring loaded against, um, you know, getting kids back in school because they thought it was going to be a political winner for them in the fall. That some I mean, they, it really was playing politics with kids in their futures. Well, there is a case that you were the most significant U.S. Secretary of Education the country's ever had. You were able to move the needle on this education freedom or school choice agenda. And, and, and your own agenda was moved forward in ways that no other secretary was quite able to achieve. A lot of people think that this is the case. Do you agree? Well, I'm not. Uh, I'm not one to make assessments of of my, you know, of myself or to try to um, take credit where there's none due. I do know that we did um, everything with the notion and the goal of doing the right thing for students. It's a very different focus than what my predecessors had and what my successor has. Uh, because we, we, we know that education needs to be focused around individual students. That Department of Education in Washington is not 
in general focused around students and students' needs and what is best for students. And um, to the extent that we could affect policy change and, um, and do everything with that in mind to return as much power and control to the state and local communities as possible, to um, you know, devolve as much of that power away from Washington, um, I will happily claim success for that. I think it should be a permanent solution, a permanent reality. I, I think the Federal Department of Education um, is, uh, is not a constructive entity for any student at, you know, at its core. Uh, there are a couple of things that the Federal Department should do uh, or has to do because of, of law, whether it's uh, protecting civil rights or ensuring supports for children with disabilities. But other than that, it has very little role and it should have no role. And, uh, and we need to go back to states and, and then the most local unit, the family being able to have the control and direction over the futures of kids and their learning and their learning opportunities. And um, I've said often that education is the least disrupted industry in our country. And I maintain that still. Uh, we have a lot of good things happening at state levels, but um, until we truly have education freedom, until every uh, family is empowered with the resources to direct the resources that are being spent on their children, um, we will not have the kind of education experience in K-12 years that we need to have. And I argue that this is, uh, this is important for every individual child, but it is equally important for our country because if we continue to um, not prepare uh, this generation and future generations to take their place in leadership in our country, um, we're not going to have a country long term. And I, I have grave concerns about the, you know, the last several decades, what we have seeded, and we have to change that. I have been speaking with former U.S. Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos, author of a new book, Hostages No More, The Fight for Education Freedom and the Future of the American Child. Thank you, Betsy, for joining me on the Education Exchange. Paul, thanks so much for the opportunity. Great to be with you. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new Education Exchange podcast released on the Education X website every Monday at noon Eastern time.